Lord, it is a privilege to come together with your people, to cease from our work this day, to rest from that labor and to hear from your word how we might be your people. I thank you for this word in particular, for it is good news for each and every one of us as we gather this morning. And I pray that you would speak these new truths, these old truths in new ways to us this morning, that you would think our thoughts, that my words would be yours, that you would bend our wills to yours, O Lord, and you would set our hearts on fire with love for you and for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, as we are entering this, this season of Epiphany and in this book of Romans, it is so easy for us to hear the words that Jerry read from us from Romans 3. And if you weren't here last week or you just isolated them, you'd be scratching your head more than likely. What is Paul getting at? What does he mean by all these words of justification, propitiation, righteousness, all the things, and so on and so forth? And on Monday morning, I, 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 I sat there, and I looked at this text, and I said to that myself and to you, good luck, you know, <laughs> because it's, it's, it's quite the task. But I'm not going to do that to you. It is a privilege, it's an honor, and it's a calling to unpack this for you this morning. So I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, because it's the strength of expository preaching through whole books or sections of whole books that we pick up where we left off. And if you were with us last week, you know we've overlapped, and that's very intentional. Because last week I, I ended that passage and I, I got to give these people good news. I can't leave them for a week because they may not come back, you know. And yet, you know, you need to keep the verse 21 in there because it's the key to the whole thing. It really is. It's the turning point of the book. It's the strength of expository preaching. And so last week we learned as God's people, we are truly blessed by being the people who have God's word because we're privileged to possess it and we need it. Why? Because we learned about the equality of our sin, that we don't need to be forgiven merely for what we do. We need to be forgiven for who we are. That, In other words, we don't need to just be forgiven for the wrong things that we do. We need to be, given, be forgiven for doing the right things with the wrong motives. You know, and Paul reminded us that there is none righteous, no, not one, last week. We learned also that sin always takes us in a direction. And that direction takes us away from a relationship with the Lord. And it seems right, it seems pleasing, but in the end is shallow and leaves us without hope. So we come to verse 21 of Paul's discussion with the Roman church. Remember, it's a Roman and it's a Jewish mix of people there in first century Rome. And we see a a dynamic problem between God and humanity. A problem for God and humanity. How can we, such totally depraved sinful beings, ever be made right with God? Divine justice demands the condemnation of the human race, and yet divine love wants to reach out to this guilty human race. 
So, in verse 21, we have the gospel in the first two words. But now. It's the turning point of the letter for both Jew and Gentiles as they read it. God in his heavenly creativity provides an answer in this passage that is totally sufficient for humanity's total failure. The great Donald Gray Barnhouse superscribed on these verses in his Bible. He was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia in the 20th century. He is a giant of a preacher. And just, just when you read his sermons, you go, oh my gosh, amazing. Just amazing scholar. And he was a, that perfect combination of brilliant intellect and warm disciple. In the margin of his Bible, he wrote, I am convinced after all these years of study that these are the most important verses in the Bible. So if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to write most important verses in the Bible. Uh, go ahead, write it. Most important. Donald Gray Barhouse, DGB, you know? Because they certainly are. So what is, they, they're certainly a turning point for the Romans. And my friends, they could just possibly be the turning point for you this morning. So what do we see in these passages are three great realities that God presents us through Paul for his people. The first reality is that in Christ you have a righteousness that's apart from the law. Or in other words, a righteousness that's apart from your performance, number one. Two, it's a righteousness that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And three... It's the reality of his righteousness because of the work of Jesus Christ, which we have to unwrap the gift. Okay? That's the three headings this morning as we see in this passage. The reality of righteousness apart from the law. The reality of righteousness that's received by faith. And three, the reality of righteousness is given to us through the work of Christ that we unwrap as the gift that it is to us by his grace. All right, so let's look at this. The reality of righteousness apart from our performance. Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You know, this word righteousness just doesn't compute in our 21st century culture. It doesn't to me necessarily. The only time it's ever used is in a negative way, really. But I want us to think about righteousness like this. Righteousness is a validating performance record that opens doors. Okay? It's a validating performance record that opens doors. For example, if you want a job, you put together your resume. That resume contains your vocational record and all your accomplishments, all your experiences. You send it out to your employer, and you take this to the employer, and you say to him, with that resume, this means that I'm worthy of this position. Accept me. And if your performance record is good enough among all the candidates, you get the job and the door opens. That's the way it really is in all of life when you think about it. You know, everybody has these validating performance records by which they get their jobs, by which they get into school, and by which they do various things. That's the reason every religion, every worldview, everywhere in the world believes it's the same with God. If there is a God and you want to have a spiritual connection, it's your record. It's a moral record. This is how you get connected to God. This is how you get to heaven. This is how you find enlightenment, whatever. 
is how you find connection with the divine. And it's from that performance record you develop a righteousness. So you offer it back to God if you're good enough, you're accepted. Paul, however, for the first time in human history, and I would suggest the last time in human history, presents an absolutely, totally unheard of approach to God has been revealed. What is that? He says there's not just a good record. It's not just a great record. It's a divine righteousness, a perfect record, and it's available to us as a gift. It comes to us. It descends upon us. And when we have it, it's the end of your struggle for validation. It's the end of your struggle for worth. It's your end of struggle for acceptability. You are. Apart from the Christian gospel, there's no other place that offers anything like this. No other place. All anyone else knows is the righteousness that we develop and offer up to God, and, and we offer up some kind of powers and say, Lord, accept me. This, this is what it's kind of like. I forgot to bring it, but I meant to bring a yardstick. So I just want you to imagine that I have a yardstick. This is another great Donald Gray Barnhouse illustration. He would, he would draw this for his classes. Here's a yardstick. At the top of the yardstick is Matthew 5.48 that Bob just read for us. And he says, therefore you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Those are Jesus' words. Gene doesn't make this up, okay? Those are Jesus' words. He says, if you want to earn your salvation, if you want to put yourself on the performance wheel, be perfect. And I saw your face as he read that. You're like, oh, man. We all do. When we're listening to the word of God and we're recognizing what Jesus is saying, we're saying, I can't. And Donald Gray Barnhouse would illustrate with this yardstick that up three quarters of the line, some people are 75% righteous, kind of like my wife, Kimmy. All right? And then there's the 1% righteous, like me. All right? And on the side, Donald Gray Barnhouse would write Romans 3.23. Look up Romans 3.23. What does it say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a great illustration in many ways, but it also taught something fundamentally wrong. Now, far be it for me to tell Donald Gray Barnhouse that he is wrong and Gene Sherman is right. But this implies unwittingly that some 75%ers need 25% more grace, and some 1%ers need 99% grace. And while it is indeed true that all have fallen short of the glory of God, it is not true that any human righteousness ever comes close to the special righteousness that God requires from the law. Because the righteousness that Christ gives us is not an earned righteousness. It's a status righteousness. It comes to us as a gift, and it's infinitely beyond human righteousness. It is a radical righteousness. And Paul says in verse 21 that this has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What is the law and the prophets? Class? The Old Testament. Okay? It's the Old Testament. He's saying, look, we've heard about this before. 
he's saying. The law pointed to this radical righteousness as humanity kept falling short of the law's commands. And although the law's insistence on blood sacrifice reminded God's people that the works of righteousness would never be enough, the Old Testament witnessed this. Isaiah, for example, says, 45, 24, Only in the Lord, it shall be said of me, are righteousness and strength. See? The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, bear witness to this righteousness apart from the law. And when we truly look at the good news that was offered to us in Jesus Christ, we recognize that the greatest display of this radical righteousness was, of course, the life of Jesus. From a human perspective, Jesus Christ is the only person who ever achieved eternal life through sheer merit. He's the only man who ever deserved eternal life simply by the way he lived. Jesus, in other words, is the radical righteousness of God. Paul says as such in 1 Corinthians 1.30, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So what does this existence of this radical righteousness apart from the law mean to us? Everything. Our total depravity so clearly spelled out in verses 1 through 20 preclude any hope of us making, gaining salvation by our works. But the existence of a righteousness apart from our works gives us great hope. In this, the hope is equally offered to everyone, whether you're a 75 percenter or a 1 percenter. The wonder of our justification, our right standing before God is possible because of a special righteousness that, ex- that is separate from our performance in the Christian life. Aren't you glad? This is good news. All right? My friends, this is my hope. And I trust that it's yours as well. That's the first thing. Secondly, the, the, we have the reality of the righteousness that's received by faith. Verse 22 the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, when we are declared righteous by God, we're justified by God, it's more than just being forgiven. It's more than just being pardoned. It's true that we're forgiven. It's true, but that's not exactly what justification is. It's more. It's infinitely more. You know, forgiveness is basically a negative. But it means you're now free from the liability to punishment. But justification is a positive. In attorney language, it's the bestowal of a status with all the rights and privileges and benefits pertaining thereunto. Think of it that way. That's who you are in Jesus Christ. And Paul's forthright statement in verse 22 here underlies all that he's been saying for throughout the whole chapter. Human righteousness is of great importance. Our works do matter. If you go down to the very end of the chapter, then do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. <laughs> Meaning, you're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Well, now that the way we live shows that. 
All right. Human righteousness is of great importance and should not be minimized, but it doesn't produce God's salvation. The ethical moralist on the right and the sexual pervert on the left are all short of the glory of God. Paul reduces the best that any man can do to absolute zero. There's no distinction. So the key to having the righteousness of God is through through faith in Jesus Christ. And the redundancy of the opening line of verse 22 emphasizes this. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Dr. Packer would say there's gospel in the prepositions. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says elsewhere in Philippians 3.9 that the righteousness is from God that depends upon faith. In verse 28 in chapter 3 of Romans, our text says it with great clarity. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Uh, when, when Martin Luther translated this verse, he felt the sense in it so strongly that he added the word alone. That we're justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. So what does this mean to us? Everything? As radically corrupt sinners, we rise from helplessness to a great hope when we see that a righteousness exists apart from our performance and this hope skyrockets, takes me to that mountaintop, and it comes through faith. Everyone who places their trust in Jesus Christ and believes has it. Some of you don't feel like you have it. Get over it. You do. That's the good news. So the wonder of justification is possible because God's righteousness comes to us through faith. Considering the depth of our sin, there's no other way any of us could ever make it. And so the, the question then becomes, well, how did this happen? And why did it happen? And why would God do all this? Well, Paul continues that. Why does he do it? How does he do it? We have the reality of righteousness through his atoning work. But we have to unpack the grace gift. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. See, you can't understand this without understanding the word propitiation. So many people in the 80s said we need to make the faith more understandable. Then they took the word propitiation out of the Bibles. A lot of NIV Bibles, they don't use propitiation. They use sacrifice. Jesus is more than a sacrifice. It's not the same word. F.F. Bruce, one of the most prominent New Testament scholars of our time, points out that this word propitiation is used 20 times in the old Greek Old Testament to denote the golden cover of the Ark of the Covenant. All right? Uh, the the so-called mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the priest sprinkled the sacrifice to assuage the wrath of God. The high priest would do this on the Day of Atonement. Paul is using this as imagery, especially for the Jewish reader, but the Gentiles get it once it's explained. 
Because he's remembering that the mercy seat was the place, number one, where God met Moses. Exodus 25, 22 says, There I will meet with you, Moses, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. I don't want Moses' job. That, that's, 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 that's above my pay grade. <laughs> Paul also knew that God manifested his glory on the mercy seat. On the day of atonement, when the high priest went in to make sacrifice for the whole people, before he went in, they had to put so much incense smoke over the mercy seat that you couldn't cut through it with a fog lamp. Why? Because it was necessary that the cloud of incense covered the mercy seat so the high priest wouldn't die in God's presence. Now, most of all, Paul remembered that the priest had to sprinkle blood seven times on the mercy seat to atone for the people's sin and to turn God's wrath away from them. So this ark that he's talking about in propitiation contained the law, the Ten Commandments, and the ceremony portrayed the fact that the human race had broken the law, causing a rift between themselves and a holy God. But through the shedding of Jesus' blood, this place of judgment becomes the place of reconciliation. In Jesus' death, the demands of God are fully met. And the demands for justice against sinful race are fully met, leaving him free to be merciful to those who formerly merited judgment. Jesus Christ, in other words, is our mercy seat and has been displayed by God as such. That's the how. And then Paul continues and tells us the why. Verse, second half of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Simply put, in the past, God did not pour out his full wrath on, on humanity for their sins. He was patient and merciful. Some people have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with that. You know, I kind of like the fact that he has mercy on me. All right? That was in the Old Testament. And if I lived then, he I would have needed it then too. However, in Jesus' death, he demonstrated his wrath against sin. And it is here in Christ being the mercy seat, that we miraculously see the love and creativity of God. God found a way to forgive us and yet maintain his moral integrity. He forgave us without condoning our sin. How? By directing toward himself and the person of his son the full rate of the wrath that we deserved. Thus, God's holy character is not compromised. The amazing genius of God is further seen in this plan, also preserved in the dignity of the human race. God does not act as if our sin does not matter. It does. But God demonstrates through Jesus that his hatred of humanity's sin and evil is as real as his forgiveness of man's sin. God did not spare his son one iota of the wrath that he deserved, that we deserved. The only way God could save us consistent with his own justice was the way he did. And it cost him everything. 
My friends, we're so loved. This is what's so wonderful when you see the mercy and grace and love of God in Jesus Christ for us. There's two responses. You fall down on your face and you say, oh Lord, have mercy upon me. Or you're cracking up and you just fall on your back and say, you love me this much? Both, both responses are acceptable. They really are. It is good to often reflect on this gift of righteousness that makes us justified before the Lord. And it was made possible because of a special radical righteousness that exists apart from our performance. That comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Everyone can make it into Christ if they want to. And the wonder of justification is possible because the genius of God, who's made Jesus the propitiation for our sins, there's a double transfer in propitiation. All that we are and all that we have done is transferred onto Jesus, and all that he is and all that he has done is transferred onto us. Propitiation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And therefore we are justified by his grace as a gift. God giving you unearned favor. Like any other gift, you have to unwrap it. You have to say, Nah, Lord, I recognize before you I have nothing. All my righteousness doesn't matter. I have to be perfect, and I can't. And I trust in him and his work alone for my salvation. And therefore, I live my life unto you, O Lord. You know, how many of you still have Christmas gifts to unwrap? You know, you had that one gift that you really didn't want to open. You stuck it over in the corner. The tree's gone. The lights are all put away. But you got one gift sitting over in the corner. No, you opened every one, didn't you? <laughs> right, of course you did. Maybe you need to open this one. Once and for all, open it. He gives it to you freely because of his love for you. So what does all this mean? Paul continues in verse 27. First, you can't boast on anything. Stop boasting on how long you're in the choir or altar guild, or Sunday school teacher, or anything you've done. Stop it. We need you to do those things, by the way. We need more greeters. We need all kinds of people, but that's not what the message is. When it comes to our salvation, boasting is absolutely unthinkable. All our salvation is of God. And that should make us humble, by the way. We should be known as humble people. Kent Hughes says, this paves the way for exhilarating infinite grace of God to deluge our bankrupt human hearts and bring us life. This is where it all begins with a walk with Christ. Putting down our pride and boasting and come with empty hands that we might receive this radical, true righteousness. But it also means that we are all on equal footing, no matter where we are. Verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. That means we don't 
be harsh people about other traditions. We like to worship the way we do. Our friends down the hall worship a totally different way than we do, but we're no better. And they're no better than us. Same thing with any church in our area. You know, it, it's a tendency to do this, right? I grew up in Virginia where the brunt of our jokes for years was West Virginia. It's taken me 55 years to say, stop making fun of the hillbillies. Hmm. Did I say hillbilly? We all do it. You do it when you're honest with yourselves. We, we look down at other people and other Christians. Oh, stop it. No boasting. I don't care if you have a, a doctorate of ministry or just a, a high school diploma. It doesn't matter. Do you now see what it really means to be a Christian? This is what Paul is trying to get to the Roman church, and it's so good for the 21st century American church. To be a Christian is not to say, I'm going to try harder. You know, say, I'm going to live like Jesus. I'm, I'm going to try to come to church more than my once a month. Good luck with that. You know, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to try to uh, uh, obey the Ten Commandments. Good luck with that. Um, what does it mean to become a Christian? It means, Lord, clothe me in your righteousness. Redeem me. And you know his answer to that prayer is? I will. It costs me everything. He doesn't just pardon you. He covers your debt that you owe the Lord. Don't you see? And then he unites us with him. He takes us into his life. He comes into our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he becomes all that he is and all that he has has now become ours. That's what's demonstrated was demonstrated now as he is both just and justifier for those who believe. Now, what does demonstrate mean? When you look at this, you'll be changed by it. You see, there's two kinds of traditional religion in America. There's the right, which says he's a demanding God. You better be good. Try hard enough. Maybe I'll take you into heaven you know, work hard to get to heaven. Alan Jackson is wrong on that one in that song. You know, it's wrong. Working hard to get to heaven. But this God that, we're ta- that Paul's talking about, the God of the cross, is more just and holy than that. Because Jesus Christ's action of going to the cross is the most perfect obedience ever performed. And when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't deserve it. He didn't need to, but he did so for us voluntarily. He perfectly loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and perfectly loved his neighbor, that's us, as himself. He fulfilled the law, and that's what Paul is saying here. The God of the cross doesn't want you just to try hard or try harder. The God of the cross wants obedience to the law. And in Jesus Christ, you get it. Because he gets the obedience to the law in your place. See, on the one hand, the God of the cross is more holy and just than the demanding American right God. Then you have the American left God, which says, oh, you know, you can believe what you want. 
you can believe in a God. God just loves and accepts everybody, so go and be a good person. By the way, when somebody asks you, uh, I just believe in God who loves and accepts everybody, just, you might want to ask them, what did it cost God to love you this way? Well, they'll say, what they'll say is, well, I, I don't know. Nothing, I guess. Well, how loving is that? It doesn't cost them anything. He loves you this way. I'll tell you the real God, the God of history, the God who's been revealed to us. He's so holy, infinitely holy, that he didn't just forgive. He had to suffer, and he did it in our place. And what you believe on the cross is a God that shed his blood for us. Do you believe in the need to appease the wrath of God by the blood of Jesus Christ? Then you have a God far more holy than the most moralistic God and far more loving than the most secularized, liberalized religion all at once. Why? Because he's just and the justifier. That's what demonstrates it, and that's what will change us. That's what changes your heart. You know, you can't come along and just tell people, you better repent or, you know, or you better be good or you're going to hell. That doesn't change people. No, what, what changes people is this gift. Because it's offered all to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, let's unwrap it. If you've truly not received this radical gift of righteousness, do it right now. I don't care if you've been confirmed. I don't care if you've been baptized. That's not what Paul's talking about. Don't care if you carry your prayer book. Don't care if you carry your Bible. No. It's about the person who recognizes that they need it ready to acknowledge their rebellion to God, agree with him that no one is righteous, no, not one, that all have turned aside and no one does good, not even one. To trust God's promise that there is a righteousness apart from the law. And we could tell God that you're solely resting on that trust in Jesus Christ who died for your sins so you could become the righteousness of God and thank him for cleansing you. Now, if you're already taking the step of faith into new life in Jesus Christ, Tell someone. Pray that God will reveal to you, around you, what he's working in other people's lives. And tell them, this is how much God loves them. And the gift that he offers to all. Maybe it's a family member. A grown child. Maybe you still have them in your home. We all have them. Brothers, sisters who don't know Christ. Long-time neighbors. You've lived next to that neighbor for years. Co-workers, most of us have those, not our retired folks, MBU, right? But most of us have co-workers who don't know Christ this way, or just maybe an acquaintance along the way. We all have them. Meet their needs as God reveals them to you and share this good news of righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. So my friends, as we continue to walk through this epiphany season, let's open the gift of righteousness, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have demonstrated through the redemption and propitiation of the cross of Jesus Christ 
that you can be both just and justifier of those who believe. My goodness. That changes us. You are infinitely holy, infinitely loving, all at once because of the cross. And we pray, Lord, for those of us who truly have never done that, that we would relinquish control, recognize our sin before you, and repent of our sin. And that from that repentance and belief and trust in you, Lord God, we would live unique lives that would flow from the grasp of that. Lives that are filled with a passion to be like you in our community. To be as honest, to be as courageous, to be as true, to be as sacrificing, to be as loving as you. Yet at the same time, we know that when we fail, we're covered by Jesus. So this passion to live like you, at the same time, this gentleness with each other and with ourselves when we're not. We ask for that, Lord. And we would be that unique kind of community. And we ask you that you would help each and every one of us to help the cross of Jesus to be in the smack middle of our hearts, our thought life, and our feelings. And we would let it liberate us from false masters and liberate us from guilt and sin. We give you our lives to do with as you wish, for we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.